Yeah, because, I mean, you know, you watch Mad Men and then there's six Betty Draper's pregnant, huffing cigs, drinking Manhattans, <laughs> and, yeah. you know. and Wait, wait a minute. Now, oh, you be. know, if you're drinking as a female, even though it's okay to drink like a glass or wine or two, but. Not like, a doctor, but yes. Not a doctor, sorry. <laughs> this is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Bourbon's rise in popularity has been a monumental shift in consumer behavior, but the reality is that it could all come crashing down really quick. Ryan, Fred, and myself, we spend some time on this episode and think about what are those threats to bourbon? We all have ideas on why it became so popular, but what are the outside influences that we have no control over? Fred spends some time and gives us a brief history of the bourbon glut era, and then that starts spurring other ideas that could hurt bourbon's popularity such as overzealous health advocates, new spirits on the rise, government taxes, or maybe even the next generation of consumers. Well, I hope you enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from my good friend Perry at This Is My Bourbon Podcast, who wrote me on January 16th of 2022, on Twitter, do heritage brands still matter to distilleries? Uh, we're going to be doing an episode on this soon. I want to hear your take. Now, make sure you go check out Perry's podcast. This is my bourbon podcast. Uh, but I do want to get to this because it's something that I I remember seeing it and I forgot to get to it. So more than a year later, here I am, Perry. Thank you for waiting. Uh, do heritage brands still matter to distilleries? I think the to kind of flip that a little bit, do heritage brands matter to consumers? By heritage, you know, we're looking at those kind of stalwart names, Jack Daniels, Jim Beam, Heaven Hill, uh, and to a certain extent, Four Roses. Uh, Stag is actually a heritage brand, but it kind of went away and then came back. You know, there's, there's I think it, defining what a heritage brand is, it doesn't mean anything to consumers. I don't think it does mean anything to consumers. I actually think that we're seeing an end of the era of dead old white men being on labels, and you're seeing more companies come out with names like uh, Guidance, uh, Montagna, that's a rum, Puncher's Chance, Oregon Spirit, Blood Oath, uh, Frey Ranch, uh, Striker, Penelope, you know, Dad's Hat, Forgate. A really good case study on this was when Heaven Hill changed Old Fitzgerald, the primary Old Fitzgerald line in the the prime and what was available to most people, uh, to Larceny. So Larceny used to be Old Fitzgerald. They changed that in 2010, 2011, and they repackaged and rebranded Old Fitzgerald as like this premium decanter. But the everyday offering became larceny, and that ended up being one of the great case studies that consumers no longer care about heritage brands uh, or about the heritage touch. So when a brand loses its power with the consumers, then that's when you see the distillers pull back and rebrand it to uh, something else. But uh, I hope that helps you, Perry, and sorry it took me more than a year to answer this. But I feel like that was a great question that I needed to get to. And that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. If you want to be like Perry, hit me up on Twitter. 
Instagram or Facebook or write me on fredminnick.com, wherever you go. Just search for my name and you'll find me. I'm the one with the blue check mark. If you go to my website, fredminnick.com, click the contact button, put in your question. If I like it, I'll read it on the air. Sometimes it takes me a year, but I'll eventually get to it. But be safe out there. Remember, vodka sucks. Cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Gift 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny, Ryan, and Fred here today to talk about something. It's it's maybe loom and gloom. Something. I hope we can we can try to find the the happiness part of this. But as we started thinking about what would happen if if bourbon started getting a threat, I mean, right now we start seeing a, a big blossom of of how bourbon is being prolific and kind of growing in every sense of the category. But there's always things that could potentially take it down. There's uh, legality. There's moms against drunk driving. There's probably tens of thousands or of just things. the raw goods concern. You know, all like that. Like oh. right now, we're going through. You know, a lot of people say, "Got to worry about barrel shortages." Not just because there's not there's tons of wood, but there's not enough stave mills to process the wood, and you know that's a real concern. Uh, not for the big producers, but small producers for sure. Oh, even the big producers. I mean, I, I we talked to one of our brokers, not brokers, but one of our contract distillation partners that we worked through, and he said, "If you could tell me where I could get nine thousand barrels tomorrow, I'll take them." Because right. he's they're, they're kind of finding it's hard, and, and they they're working between three different cooperages just to be able to source them. Yeah, yeah, and we still just don't know the ramifications of COVID and shutdowns and whatnot. I mean, it's supply chain still kind of screwed up and we don't know what's gonna the future lies you know and there's so much there's so many components that go into whiskey and bourbon that there's so many yeah. things at the mercy of that so who knows you know it's like you know say you can't get nine thousand barrels you know for a year and you're 
you're trying to meet allocation six, seven years from now, you know, you have no idea. And then you talk to the, like, I remember Sagamore said, you know, during 2020, they had to stop the still to produce hand sanitizer because of a mandate, you know, they had to produce sanitizer and it's like, they lost, you know, a half a year of producing whiskey, you know, what does that do to their sales, you know, moving forward. And yeah. so, yeah, there's, I mean, probably everything's going to be okay, but it's, Good to speculate and well, staying on uh, the raw materials and, and it, this is also just a it, it is fun to speculate, but that's something that's part of the bourbon journey. The minute that you get in here and you become a geek, you start getting in these circles and you ask the question, "When's the bubble gonna pop?" Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just uh, and and in the history books, every history book, including mine, goes through great details of the historic uh, gluts and bourbon. And when they hit, uh, the market crashes and it hurts. Uh, and so I think it's fair for us to talk about this beyond a speculation point, but as a question of like, is bourbon prepared? And, you know, staying on the subject of uh, raw materials, I was talking to um, uh, someone who specializes in distiller grains uh, recently, and they told me that this year's corn crop, the 2022 corn crop for the that supplies the bourbon distillers, there's very much concern about what it's going to be like, what the yield's going to be, because they've never seen so much moisture, so much rain. And uh, fertilizer prices were through the roof, exactly. so a lot of farmers decided, they're like, uh, we're not paying those prices for fertilizer, so we're going to skimp out, and so yields may be down, down yeah. to that as well. Yeah, so there's there's a little bit of that, and, you know, on the, the secondary grains, you know, wheat, barley, those, those are riot, they're fine, even though there was that whole Ukraine-Russia shortage of wheat that did not impact bourbon at all well maybe shifted things a little bit but i don't think in that we would see it much but uh from a raw you know we can just start there like what's the threat on the raw materials the cost of of growing grain that's a big one definitely gone up of course we've all been succumbed to the glass shortage we all know exactly what that has come down to but i think that's a the light is at the end of the tunnel for that people have been saying it's going to be towards the end of 2023 going into 24 is when that will basically go back to normal. So I think that might have been mostly, I don't think that's really a... Until the next war happens yeah. that you don't even know about. Right. Yeah. But I mean, it's. It, I think that was a lot of the shortage that were just the people that were working in those types of factories because a lot of glass is made in Mexico. It's made in France. It's made in uh, a lot of parts of the country that uh, not necessarily U.S. And so that. Yeah, was, it's kind of like that. When you learn about this, you there's this education moment. Like, why? Why is it made here? <laughs> you know, and it's because like the amount of work it takes to make glass, like uh, our labor doesn't necessarily match up with with the efforts well, it takes. too it has a lot to do with like sand quality or too something like it yeah. doesn't like french and chinese sand like far far superior to provide like a clear glass than sure but that you know you can always import the goods right sure. the materials it's always cheaper to not to but um you know in terms of like there's plenty of sand out here to to make glass with and definitely on the recycling side as well but uh you know i i i think that the the glass shortage is a, a supply of what it takes to make the glass, right? But it's also labor. I remember someone telling me about, like, uh, I won't say what glass manufacturer, like, the, the people just didn't want to work that day. They didn't feel like they were getting paid enough, so they just walked out. And so that threw off glass manufacturing for a brand. I say labor shortage in general is still a very real thing. It's still going on today just because of uh, restaurants and everybody's short-staffed. And the pandemic definitely still had a... a 
could play it into that. And I was not in the service industry or anything like that prior to then, but you know, you don't see a whole lot of people either going back to it or that gave them the opportunity to go and figure out, oh, there's all kinds of other things that I can go and work at and I can work from home. I can go and work in a different industry. I might be able to get paid more. And so they did pandemic threw off everything because it really increased like you know, the need for warehouse space and warehouse workers and processing, you know, online orders and logistics and moving. And so a lot of the workforce that was, you know, on the hospitality industry side, they made great money, but it's terrible hours. You know, it's, it's a, it's a hard life, you know, and then you can, whereas you can go to a a nice cushy warehouse job in the air conditioning, nine to five insurance benefits, a great starting pay. A lot of them are you know, starting 20, 25, $30 an hour. And it's like, why not, you know, be more consistent at this. And so there's just, there's so much stuff from the pandemic that's kind of shifted things that sure it's taken everybody, you know, some reevaluating, rethinking of how, you know, the workforce is going to be and how do you, and, and to be honest, employees got smarter too. They were like, Hey, we have a lot of leverage, you know, and power over people. And that, that's so, you know, and a lot of industries were underpaying and, taking advantage of you know workforce so it's uh not of it's all bad but it definitely has disrupted the entire system <laughs> yeah it just up the system and if you think about it just from you made a great point just of, of trying to find even if you're somebody that is you know you don't have the college education so you are you are in the general blue collar workforce you could go work at amazon and either drive a truck you're in an air conditioner all day or you're working at the warehouse it's air conditioned compared to that as it might be the same pay grade as somebody that's a Cooper, right? That's a little bit more skill that's involved, but holy shit, I've seen Cooperages. I've seen how hard those people work and they are sweating, they are moving, mm-hmm. they're busting their butts. It's yeah. a workout. It is, it is. So it's a little bit different. And so making sure that, you know, you you equate the the type of labor to the skill and, and pay properly. And these places are all, all unionized. I think they're the only major distillery... Uh, that's not unionized is uh, Maker's Mark, I think. I think uh, there might be a couple other. It might be one other, but I think it's just Maker's Mark. But like, um, you know, I know we're talking Cooperages here, but like- But no, unions, unions have a have a potential threat as well as to this too. I mean, we talked about what would have, I mean, gosh, you, you know the history better than anybody. I don't think there's a distillery that hasn't gone through a union strike. Yeah, Brown Foreman's though they're the one it's it's been the longest but even they've had to deal with it uh but there the fact is is like you know workers see this boom and they want to be justly compensated and they feel like you know they get the the raw end of the deal and so like with this with the success of bourbon if the distillers do not take care of their workers strikes will happen and you know what? That's why the system is in place. That's why, like, there's you know labor peace. That's why, like, they're out writing a big fat check when when they can because they want to prevent that. Because a week of no labor, you know that 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 throws things off. Yeah, because sure when Heaven Hill, all the executives are out running forklifts and trying to bottle and this <laughs> and that, and you know then they're trying to get you know other companies to bottle for them, and they're like, we'd love to, but we're backed up, you know, and this and that, and so you're like. What is a, gosh, that thing went on for what, eight weeks, 10 weeks? You know, what is the that? The last one, it was something around there. Yeah. I mean, how, what does that do to your P&L, you know, for six to eight months from now? Um, it's just, this industry is fascinating, but it's also difficult because things that are happening are now, you're not going to see the results of that for another four to six years. Yeah. And it's like, how do you, 
overcompensate those and whatnot? And how do you always try to stay ahead of that next uh, challenge, I guess? Yeah. And, and you know, the, the other thing about this is like, you know, we're, if we're staying on the labor side, like, and we're, this is about what will bring, you know, bourbon down. But if there's ever like some kind of like bad contamination due to, you know, someone not paying attention, I mean, that, that can happen. Like there's, this is chemicals and there's things around there. I mean, if, if, if something improper were to get mixed in with, with bourbon and got people sick, you know, beyond just, you know, hangover kind of sick, that would have an impact. So that's why like these people at these jobs, like they're so important. Like I made the comment uh, once upon a time that there's a lot more skill required to work a bourbon centric job than people want to give it credit for. And I'm telling you, rolling a barrel, it's, it's hard and it's a lot of work. You do that 200 times over in a day, you can get sloppy and lose a thumb real quick. So these hands have no calluses on them. So you don't have to worry about being <laughs> rolling, rolling into barrels. Yeah. It, but you do bring a good point. Like when I had no idea that when we started bottling at Bardstown Bourbon Company and they have these, you know, lab techs and they're in there, you know, they pull samples out of the barrel, then they pull it out of the, when it's in the tank, and then they pull it before it goes in the line. And then they're always looking for those negative compounds that could yeah. cause something. And they're testing it constantly for quality control. And you're like, wow, glad they have all this shit. Because <laughs> I didn't <laughs> you know, think about it. I didn't even think about it. You just assume that it's okay. It's, you know, it was distilled and it comes into a barrel. You think it's okay to just put it in a bottle, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's like little um, things that will, in, in Scotland, they will use a glue on a, on a barrel head. There's been some of them that have been seen to be, make the whiskey contaminated. They don't use it anymore. But there's all kinds of stuff that, like, you have to have these checks and balances. Uh, and that's just, you know, here we are. We're kind of breaking this down all the way through of, like, what could in bourbon or what could be bad for bourbon. We're kind of going from materials to to labor to, like, actually you know, putting it in the bottle. But, like, that, the whiskey inside the bottle best be legit. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Why don't you, Fred, talk, tell us about, because you're our – Lead historian. Um, <laughs> he knows everything at this point. Talk about the first whiskey glut and what truly caused that and like what are some things that yeah, we so, could do to prevent that. So the late 1800s. Drink, drink more whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the late 1800s, uh, there was uh, a really major, you know, glut that came about. And a lot of it was that you had the government that was basically uh, saying like you're in bond, it's you got you need to sell your whiskey, uh, and they would try to keep the the distillers would always kind of go back and forth of like trying to keep something in bond so they wouldn't have to pay taxes on it until they were ready to sell it, and uh, and so there was a lot of jockeying back and forth on when some of that was going to come out. So and that was one of the big reasons too why bottled and bond became a thing that it, there was a protection measure there, but it was also there was also like the jockeying of like when to pay taxes on your barrels. Prior to prohibition, there was not as much of a, a glut, but you know the the more famous one would be when everything's ramping up in the 1950s. Bourbon becomes a unique product of the United States, and they you know the community's like we we are here, like we can we'll be able to. Um, export to France and, you know, pay less in tariffs and duties because we have geographical protection now. That was their, that was their thinking. 
But then vodka comes in and just sweeps out all the brown spirits. And, you know, Pennsylvania rye essentially died the day that vodka was came in the States at a big level. Why was vodka so popular? I was about to say, was it just a big marketing effort? Um, well, no. So actually there was there was a portion it's weird that like it, you know, it's a cold, I'm thinking cold war time. Yeah. It's like, okay, you're onto a Russian product, you know. There there were people who thought it was treasonous to drink vodka. Yeah. Uh, but they would be the older crowd. Um, the younger generation of that time in the 60s was, that was probably one of the most documented rebellious generations of our country's history, you know, some were called hippies and they wanted to drink what their parents didn't drink. And vodka was like, uh, it had just gotten a federal definition in the United States in 1958 and it was just came in and uh, James Bond said he wanted a martini shaken and not stirred. There was this big movement of people who did not want to have the alcohol be smelled on their breath. And so they would, like, if they got pulled over, the, the cop couldn't smell alcohol on their breath because you can't smell vodka. And so that was, uh, that was, it was kind of like a combo of, of things. And then the bourbon distillers, when they saw that competition, they tried to change up how they marketed themselves. They first, uh, lowered their proofs to like 86 proof and tried to like mix it with orange juice. That didn't work. Then they created light whiskey, which is distilled at higher proof points and in uh, aged in uh, either uncharred barrels or used barrels. So it's, it's, it's more neutral and similar to vodka that did not work. And so eventually like 1972, all the signs were, were there. Old Taylor closes. It's a Willer. It sells and you start seeing a complete drop of people uh, with, with the bourbon brands. And so like they're, they went from a uh, mass mass production to like no demand, uh, far less demand uh, in the seventies. And by 1984, which was when Blanton's, you know, officially came out, bourbon was like, in terms of uh, best selling items in the, in a spirit skew, they were like five or six behind like uh cream liqueurs, cordials, and like that the early 80s was a time of like Kahlua and, and cordials and things like that. And of course, vodkas. Those rattlesnake shots, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess so. <laughs> but uh, so, so, so the, the thing that has, has always led to a glut was that something tampered with the flow, you know, something and, and bourbon would have reacted a certain way. And it's not a it's not a product per se. It was like just a social, yeah thing. It's yeah, it's a change in it's a change in social uh, behavior or government behavior. And in my book, uh, Bourbon: The Rise Fall Rebirth of American Whiskey, I I pinpointed a, a couple things that could really change the the flow and demand of of bourbon. Uh, one of them was, was tariffs. We've already seen the bourbon world survive significant tariffs uh, from around the world because they've been v ramping up for international demand. There was issues with uh, uh, the previous administration's tariffs on steel. And so Europe and China, Canada, all these people retaliated by tariffing whiskey. And it's just the way it is. That's the, that's the political nature of the beast. Like you tariff us, we tariff you. That's just how it goes. And, Bourbon not only survived that, they thrived. They doubled down on their domestic efforts. You saw things like Sazerac uh, say, well, you know what? We're going to make these products that are really only available for Germany and France right here in the United States of America. South Dakota, 
here's your very first uh, straight from the barrel Blantons, you know. So, the, so that did not take it off the pedestal. I always thought that something like a, a war or a pandemic would have a big impact on on the flow of bourbon, and that may trickle down later on. But during the time, uh, we saw that people drink more. But there, there are a couple other things that I that I talked about and are still very much in play. And that's this new form of dries. Like prior to prohibition, they called people who didn't want to drink, you know, dries. That was what they were known in pop culture. And today, the World Health Organization issued a report to its its membership that they should discontinue alcohol advertising at sporting events. Uh, that alcohol companies should not be allowed to sponsor uh, women's charities and that social media should begin to uh, ban alcohol in the in their algorithms so there is a kind of a new form of dry with good intentions of trying to make people healthier uh, that I think could pose an enormous threat to all of alcohol, not just bourbon. And that is people want saying like, you drink whiskey, you are 15 times more likely to get cancer. And a lot of those studies that have come out have been proven to be very, very poorly done and falsified even. But then the alcohol industry has been caught financing their own studies. So, it, you know, when sometimes when you see like, hey, have a glass of wine a day, it's good for your heart or something like that, you know, it uh, sometimes that backfires too. But so that's something that is, is very important and I think we should keep an eye on. And this is also too, what drinking responsibly doesn't mean staying out till four o'clock in the morning and drinking all night with your <laughs> friends. But, yeah, uh, who does that anymore? I, that's <laughs> odd, so odd. Yeah, that's an inside joke. That just happened last night. With <laughs> but you did make a good point there of saying if a, if an organization does come through and tries to put a ban on the advertising, it could kill the entire industry. Mm-hmm. Look at cigarettes. Look at what happened to Campbell Joe or Joe Camel, whatever whichever yeah. way it goes. I mean, cigarettes. There's no there's no hiding the studies there. That was like that's the one thing you can cut out of your life and it will increase your lifespan by 70%, you know, yeah. just, but alcohol is more murky. And the problem with these studies too, and I'm obviously no doctor, no nothing is like, there's so many factors that goes into someone's right. lifestyle, you know, genetics it's like being part of it, genetics, yeah. diet, lifestyle, exercise, mm-hmm. habit, stress, this and that. And it's hard to like, you could say that is it causation or correlation, you know, and a lot of times it's correlation in these studies. Uh, I just know from reading studies from, you know, herbicides and different things and different things that are considered carcinogens and whatnot. It's, you know, but coffee is a carcinogen. You don't see people going around. Ban uh, coffee. You know, no more coffee, coffee sales. Makeup is. Well, you don't Utah, see people maybe. going to Costco and saying, you better get rid of all your makeup, <laughs> you know, but. Uh, That's killing the fish. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's. It, but it is, it is a true threat, you know, and we have to stay ahead of it, you know, with responsible initiatives and trying to do direct consumer shipping and whatnot, make sure it's done right, that we're all the proper channels are so that no young people get, you know, served, even though it happens already. But as soon as someone gets a shipment of alcohol that's underage and gets sick and yeah. something happens, you know, that's going to be 
really bad for the industry. And so we, we got it. But the, you know, like bars and retailers serve underage all the time. Right. Caught exactly. all the time and, yeah. the, and the industry's fine. And you know, one of the things is, is the alcohol industry in, in an effort to prevent another prohibition have basically has worked very closely with the government over the years to make sure that people are in compliance. That's why if you turn on the TV, you, you're not going to see a lot of alcohol in there if it's at a time when children could be on. You're not going to see Jack Daniels advertising on Nickelodeon because they have to meet certain criteria. I think the number 76% of the viewers have to be 21 years or older. Um, Which actually comes from the, the discus right. guideline that, that you that, can find online. And that was uh, an agreement that the, the government can no longer police that. So they leave it to the industry to police it. So when, when we, so in a sense, kind of similar to the FDA and like how the drug companies police themselves, <laughs> that's another story, um, the, the alcohol industry is expected to police themselves. So like when, with, uh, when Kendall Jenner had a, was yeah. drinking tequila out of, straw. out of a straw. The Stilled Spirits Council went, I almost said the wrong thing there, went after her <laughs> and um, and got that taken down. And they had full teeth of the federal government's code, which is their code, to say that you're encouraging people to drink straight from the bottle and your audience is under 21. So, you know, they have the power to do that. And that is to prevent... I'm just using this random government, the government in Kenya, from using that as an example to uh, ban alcohol. Because, we, you know, we live live in a fairly safe bubble in the United States. Another prohibition is not going to happen. There might be some things change here and there. But Nigeria, uh, Kenya, places like, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, Europe's being Saudi pretty Arabia. strict about Europe, this, yeah. this whole alcohol, you know, reduction. You know, they're really being aggressive about trying to reduce the, the amount of alcohol intake in Europe. It's quite shocking, really. And they're trying to get cancer warnings on, on bottles as well. Which, by the way, if you're a collector, that could be a very interesting way to date your future bottles. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but, who, who needs tax stamps? So, but the surgeon, so the Surgeon General warning on alcohol... Uh, that you uh, you may have a miscarriage or something if you drink uh, too much. I don't what whatever the language is. Yeah, yeah, that that came about because a woman was drinking about like a bottle a day of Jim Beam and was her child was born with an alcohol dependency. Uh, there's a term for it. I can't recall what it is. Crack baby. Well, that's when it's crack. <laughs> I'm just um, messing with it. Beam, beam baby. No, they, they <laughs> but, probably uh, would hate that. Sorry. <laughs> that that human is still alive, by the way. Uh, but uh, it the the government imposed this, you know, Surgeon General warning. Did it have an impact on on women not drinking when they're pregnant? I think so. <laughs> I think that probably did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean. You know, you watch Mad Men, and then there's six Betty Drapers pregnant, huffing cigs, drinking Manhattans, and <laughs> yeah. you know, and wait, wait a minute. Now oh, it used to you be. know, if you're drinking as a female, even though it's okay to drink like a glass or wine or two, but not like, a doctor, but yes, not a doctor. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> that's what R O B G Y N told my wife. <laughs> um, but yeah, for the most part, I think it's been a huge success in that that regard. And so some of these, like I said it from the top, a lot of this comes from a good place. And the fact is, we're, you know, the people who want to restrict how alcohol 
is uh, discussed and sent over and all that, that's because none of us want our children drinking before their brains are ready and kidneys are ready to handle alcohol. None of us want that. So, you know, the thing is, is like as a community, like that's why I always say like, let's be responsible. Like it, it is, this was an above the char for me a long time ago, but um, you know, when one of my kids was born, someone sent me a, uh, a distillery bib and I was like, look, man, I appreciate you sitting that. I know you're a new distillery, but um, yeah, you can't do that. You got you got to be careful about alcohol and babies. And, and, and you'll be in a Facebook group, and you'll see someone put a, their newborn baby so excited about the world and everything, and they put a bottle of Pappy in there and have a toast uh, like that. And it's just like that's cute. It's well intended, but you know, in the hands of the wrong person, that could be used to justify irresponsibility, and thus they would say it's got to be banned because these people are serving uh pappy to babies of course that's ridiculous but we're not talking about people using logical conversations here they're they use extreme measure extreme um conversations to get what they want which is which is control and they want to control what we drink what we put in our bodies and if some people had their druthers in the world we would never eat meat again you know right yeah and they would justify it any number of ways to include climate change and, yep. uh, and methane farts, and so <laughs> to look at you. Uh, or, or there's one, there's one, uh, one group that goes around and says that uses this argument on uh, campuses, saying like all collegiate campuses should be dry because the rates of gonorrhea are higher uh, in places where they can buy a drink. So I'm like, well, I mean, the data doesn't really support that. Like if you've studied gonorrhea to the levels that uh, <laughs> that you have that I have over the <laughs> yeah, years, not, not the gonorrhea expert over here, but maybe you are. <laughs> but it, it, it to my point is that like they are always trying to take away take away something an alcohol, but they have been unsuccessful because the alcohol industry does such a good job of checking little things that we as enthusiasts may think are silly and it's an overreaction, but like the Scotch test dummies, may he rest in peace. You know, when he... Scotch trooper. Scott, I'm sorry, Scotch trooper. May he rest in peace. Uh, when he had the... Uh, discus went after him when he had the uh, the troopers with the bottles and everything. And, you know, they're all they're trying to do there and all they were trying to do with like the, the Kendall Jenner thing is is to prevent someone taking it the wrong way. And unfortunately, when you're in this business, you have to put it through, you know, that filter before you click send. Very true. That's why I don't I don't have any my children, children child. I never put her in any posts anymore, anything like that. Oh, Just no. anything on, on our social yeah. accounts because there's I don't want to give any ammo to anybody to be able to use it no, against us. Absolutely. That's why I don't post in general. No, I'm, kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I mean it's so you talk about vodka, you know, bringing it down. Is there a spirit, any current spirit that could be a threat? You know, beer companies probably 10 years ago had no idea seltzers were going to, you know, rock their world. And, right. You know, and I don't know. I'm pretty that the, You know, the new consumer seems to be very calorie conscious, sugar conscious, more health focused with drinking, which is kind of an oxymoron. But, um, you know, what do you see any spirits that could uh, potentially do what vodka did to bourbon in the 60s?
Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. So you talk about vodka, you know, bringing it down. Is there a spirit, any current spirit that could be a threat? You know, beer companies probably 10 years ago had no idea seltzers were going to, you know, rock their world. And, right. You know, and I don't know. I'm pretty bad. You know, the new consumer seems to be very calorie conscious, sugar conscious, more health focused with drinking, which is kind of an oxymoron. But, um, you know, what do you see any spirits that could uh, potentially do what vodka did to bourbon? In the 60s? You know, it's interesting. I, I think it's... The natural thing would be to say tequila. Yeah, that's what I, I was going to say. I was like, that's what seems logical because of just the explosion and growth. But I think they complement one another. I yeah. think, I think like, there's so much crossover between bourbon and tequila drinkers. And correct me if I'm wrong, listeners. Tell us and email us, comment uh, if you're a tequila drinker or not, if you hate tequila. But I think there's a lot of crossover. And I think more importantly... There's a lot of married couples. One's a bourbon drinker, one's a tequila drinker. And date night, boom. You know, there's one of each. I think there's a symmetry between those two. In terms of something that uh, would, you know, like they would come in and, and take them out. Um, it's going to be all that 13-year MGP light whiskey. No, oh, <laughs> gonna make yeah. a comeback. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> just not, for, there's not enough of it and to, no. Um if they ever really wanted to change how they did their marketing, I think cognac could uh, take a significant share of uh, of bourbon because they have they have the the brands, they have the heritage distilleries, and they have a a very good and similar story. Probably even they they have a, a way better grading system. They have great product. I think the only cognac. thing that would probably stop cognac is probably the entry point in regards of price for a lot of people because I don't know how many great cognacs are out there for twenty dollars, twenty five, thirty. 
You're you can usually, get you can get a VS. You can get a VS for twenty to thirty. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm just saying. Usually, in my experiences so far, yeah. at least of the cognacs that I've had, uh, cognacs, armagnacs, everything like that, even some good brandies. But I like mean, Christian you're, Brothers, you're, one you're of the biggest selling brandies is what twenty twenty five bucks. Right. Yeah, that's an American uh, brandy. But yeah, that that genre, the genre of brandy, could could be it. I mean, that could be. But specifically to cognac, you know, if cognac would be Kentucky bourbon and, you know, there's it'd be an equivalent there. But I, I think that could be it because they also could have a travel component. But they are the French do not market and think like Americans when it comes to the, they take a very, uh, very old world uh, wine marketing strategy with the exception of like to the rap community. They have uh, cognac has fully embraced uh, hip hop, and that's why you hear about. That's why you see so much hip hop collaborations over the years. What about one that can, might come out of left field, like Baijiu, right? I mean, it's one of the biggest growing and, and capitalizing spirits over in China. Well, it's like the top eight spirits in the world are companies yeah. in the world are Baijiu, aren't they? Yeah. So um, I've never have had. You, have Baijiu. you ever had Baijiu? No, I have not. So there's your answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's. I mean, the idea is to think that what would overtake it. I mean, you just mentioned earlier that it, the it, it, beers that beers never saw seltzers coming. This is something yeah. that we wouldn't see coming. That's true. That's true. Like, I mean, I think that um, you know China would have to be sending enough over here. I actually have had some some really good Baggio, and and they're yeah, I've had it at competition, and there's there's stuff that's aged, and there's 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 potential there, but it's kind of like Canadian whiskey. Canadian whiskey does not send their best stuff to America, you know, so China would have to send their best stuff here and I've had their best stuff and it's, it's pretty good. Um, what does Baju even taste like? What's the flavor profile? Very, uh, very earthy. So imagine like a, an old dusty that has, uh, been kind of dragged through that kind of like earth mode. Um, it's real earthy. Real earthy. Right. Real earthy no sweet and dusty. Corn. Yeah. Oh, we'll be okay then. Do you think, one thing I've found interesting, you know, bourbon, you know, with the health conscious new drinker, bourbon's one of those few spirits that has, you know, zero sugar, zero carbs. You know, it's very, it's up yeah. there with vodka and tequila yeah. as far yeah. as, but like, you know, you see them, you know, tequila, vodka really clutched, you know, like gluten-free and this and that or calorie, but bourbon's never really like touched that. You know, and I feel like they're missing an opportunity, you know, whereas... Well, I think they just run out of space on a label. You know? <laughs> That's true. I mean... <laughs> the uh, calorie-free bourbon. They just... How well, are they going to get calorie-free because of alcohol? <laughs> how are they going to get handcrafted, small batch, single barrel, bottled and bond, uh, you know, all on there? True. Plus uh, the backstory of how Grandpa brought over the yeast in his toes, but uh, bourbon, that's, that's why the barrel finishes scare me is because like they can add stuff there and that always gets lumped into bourbon uh even if like an educated consumer knows better the normal person doesn't they don't know what a you know whiskey specialty actually means yeah they don't know that and then like and also with rye whiskey like if you don't see straight on the rye whiskey label they can add two percent of flavoring so um i mean there's a lot of little things out there but like in rum you know that's a real problem Rum, rum, you, they add so much and tequila sugar. too. Yeah, and tequila, it's a major problem. Casamigos, tons yep. of sugar, additives, but mm-hmm. nobody knows. Well, I mean, that's why some people have the, you know, the hydrometer to check, right? So, 
You got to know. But I'll throw another one at you also. What about taxes? Um, we, we know that right now that it's one of the most heavily taxed industries yeah. that come out there. Uh, we pay a, a great amount of federal excise tax on ourselves when we go through bottling and it stifles growth. It stifles our own income ability to go to bourbon full time. Kind of what are your thoughts on taxes? A, a potential well, Kenny, the, they just hired 87,000 more IRS <laughs> agents to help us uh, from having to uh, pay taxes. So. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, God, erase that part. We don't need to be audited. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think that taxes just get passed on. And as long as there's a consumer base to buy, you know, that's fine. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, that's true. As long as taxes don't increase, they just got to stay the same or decrease. Well, I know they work really hard in Kentucky to cut cut a lot of taxes, but um, I, I also think that taxes are probably the best uh, the best weapon against the prohibition thing. You know, right. because and like, the activist because yeah. the governments and states really need these monies. To- yeah, that's that's exactly right. And so, like, if you have I mean, there. Every time there's a vote in Kentucky for a county, we still have dry counties across this country. When there's a vote, all the Kentucky Distillers Association has to do, or the Wholesalers Association has to do, is go in there and say, uh, "Your neighboring county is getting this tax here, this tax here, this tax here. That built this school, that built this road. That's real." And so I, I joke about it all the time at my events. Like when you when you drink Kentucky bourbon, you're helping the children of Kentucky. I joke about that, but it's true. Like Anderson County schools, I mean, those are really nice looking schools. <laughs> you know, you know, it's no funny, Bardstown City schools are too, <laughs> now that you think about it. Yeah, Bardstown's, the roads are paved in 24 karat gold in Bardstown, aren't they? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so the last one- It's I'll, copper, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess the next one to kind of look at is, is the next generation. You know, we right now we are a lot of us are are Gen Xers or millennials that are listening to this. Uh, maybe a few boomers out there, but I don't really know what the the next generation is going to do. Like that is that is a, a cannabis generation. It is the one that's the white claw generation. Uh, I mean, the data on them is that they just want something that's good. Like they they are willing to buy an eighty dollar bottle instead of and and sipping on it versus like getting something to get messed up. So they're different than us when we were 21. But I, I mean, I, I look at that and I see, I see what my cousins drink and they're younger than me. They're either seniors at college or they're just now graduating. And yeah, they're they're still pounding white claws at the end of the day. None of them are really like the end of the bourbon scene yet. Not there yet. But, but I mean, wait till they have kids. To be, to be fair, it could be the demographic, uh, it could be location of where they're, where they're at. You know, somebody that's in a different part of the country versus somebody like me when I was going through college, bourbon was just what everybody in the fraternity drank. So therefore, I still kept drinking bourbon mm-hmm. and I, I didn't stop. But maybe that's just because I'm a, I, I just went too far down the rabbit hole with it. <laughs> no, we all start somewhere. But, yeah. Uh, I mean, and too, there's, you know, a lot of with cannabis and other things, a lot of people at, at what'd you call them? Dryers? Dryers. Tries. Tries. And, you know, mocktails are now a thing. And I think, uh, you know, there, cause there are some negative aspects of alcohol and some people see that, you know, they've gone completely opposite the other way. They're, they're like, I'm not going to be like my generator cause I'm going to be 
dry and clear headed and whatever health focused and this and that it's there. And there's so much more, you know, I feel like younger people starting with ours, there's, there's so much information about like health and wellness now that like people can really like focus on that. And, you know, and alcohol by itself is, it's okay in small quantities, but obviously if you're abusing it and then it also leads to extra, extra calories and bad mistakes and this and that. And I think, you know, I think younger generations has seen that they're, you know, older ones and might be like, okay, I'm not going to mess with that. Yeah. There's also like a social aspect with this generation and millennials uh, as well. That's true. They don't go out there like perfectly content sitting on their phones at home. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I I was thinking more like, uh, like social issues, you know, like wanting, wanting to support, like if brands do not, if they're not a, a socially engaging company or they don't embrace like uh, fixing things like climate change, the, this generation will not necessarily boycott you, but just won't buy your stuff. And then there's the op- oh, yeah. sustainable you know, packaging and all that. Stuff. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's important. You know, I mean, it, that's important. Also, a lot of that packaging feels better. It's better. And, uh, I've had more conversations with 22-year-olds about like how how uh, the environmental impact of of whiskey than I ever had with any other generation. And it's it's a great conversation to have with people because like there's a lot of things that need to be improved. And this is another thing. I I didn't even talk about this in the water there's water issues all over our country. You know, in Nevada, there's restrictions on distilling there. They're, they're beginning to look at restricting distillation in states where there's water shortages. Like, I'll be curious what happens in Colorado because they have so much alcohol being made there and they're in a, they're in a water crisis. Uh, if there's ever a point where they come, the federal government says, all right, these water, these water rich states like Kentucky, you need to start decreasing your production and moving water over here. I mean, that's something that we have to think about as well but uh i mean there, there's just there's so much stuff and, and the generation z i think is a thoughtful very smart uh, articulate generation that wants a good experience with weed and <laughs> you know and and a really really nice bourbon okay apparently white claw i, I, I like I those mean. combos too myself <laughs> and i'm there you go i'm a gen i don't even know what i am you're a millennial millennial, you're a millennial. okay i'm i'm uh i'm a gen xer gotcha uh, i guess this one might be a little bit out of left field maybe the last one would greed as in the the bourbon distilleries thinking that they can overproduce overcrowd, yeah, and try to shove out other people and they try to be kind of like the dominant player and be like the number one instead of you know, being, you know, a lot of variety across the, across the shelves, they want to be the only bottle. On or the fatigue, you know, with all these different releases, like LTOs, all this, you know, I don't know, fatigue, buyer fatigue. We almost saw fatigue with Weller, you know, that year that they had a single barrel, then the blue label, and then another one, and then another it one. It didn't slow down anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It didn't slow, it ramped you know, it up. <laughs> we thought it, we thought it was going to cause fatigue, but, uh, I mean, I just think it depends on how sexy is the brand, you know, uh, the, the greed aspect, one of the most interesting cultures to study is Las Vegas, you know, when it comes to alcohol and you can see like what, what, uh, distillery has, uh, 
gotten in with a, a casino by like what bottles are on the wall. That's the kind of that's the kind of greed that I think uh, is dangerous. Are the pay to play schemes uh, to buy out shelving, to buy out uh, restaurants, uh, which you know it's no one talks about it. it. Happens everywhere. A distiller just tweeted the other day about like how the U.S. restaurant industry, from an alcohol brand perspective, is the biggest. Uh, is one of the most corrupt businesses in the world because all they all want money from the from the brands to carry their product or product at basically no cost. Yeah, you know to you know just so they're the featured cocktail or this that and they can charge ten or twelve dollars for. And they want us to or a, a producer to eat it as a marketing fee essentially. Yep. Yeah, and that's that's happening all over the uh, all over the country all the time, and that that part agreed. That's bad because at some point. The federal government will be taking a little look under that. Uh, the Do you think there's a potential hurt. like one of these major players just becoming too big and then they ruin it all for everyone? You mean like monopoly? Yeah, in this? like that could actually happen. Like the the they like Diageo bro- Constellation Heaven Hill all join forces, <laughs> right? They would get broken up. Like when Seagram's when Seagram's um, went out of business, they split it up between Pernod Ricard and, and sliced off pieces to companies like Kieran, but. Uh, well, I just like envision like Diageo and Pernod, you know, going out and buying up all these brands because yeah. they're hot now, but then they kind of like, you know, slowly die off. I don't know if that. Yeah, those, that has to, those things have to clear the SEC and FTC and they're pretty good at. Uh, yeah. Didn't that happen with like United Distillers and. It, it wouldn't, National it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen over a, a small brand. It The the SEC would only clear things over a, a major merger because they would look yeah. at anti, antitrust agreements uh, or antitrust things that would happen between basically anywhere in the world, whether it's US or Europe or anything like that. If, if they came and they said, Hey, we're going to buy out smoke wagon, SEC ain't going to give a shit. Right. Yeah. That's not going to matter. It's, you know, yeah. Pernod and Diageo and Constellation, if one of these majors, they start looking at, at mergers. And yeah. I don't think that's, they would. that's when they start looking at antitrust and, and monopoly yeah, and stuff like that. There's no way that they would let that happen. They just, I mean, they would maybe say you can buy five brands out of Pernod, but you can't have it all. I can see that happening. But like, I don't know. I, I guess I'm going to use like Sazerac purchasing early times as an example. You know, early times was a fantastic cheap brand. You know, obviously it was not good for a while because it was blended whiskey, but then they kind of revamped it and made it good. Right. But now we haven't seen anything of it, you know, and do these bigger companies just buy these brands out to like squash the competition, you know, that I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, I kind of see what you're saying. So kind of just acquire to kill. Right, and then it's you know that's what happened in the forties, right? And I, and I would say that was really bad for whiskey. Yeah, I mean, have you ever heard of the Blair whiskey out of Marion County? You know, it's gone. It's just completely gone. And uh, there's tons of those like that, and they're they're just you know histories and all that. So I I think the larger companies though, I I think they're good. I don't think there's a lot more acquisitions to be had. And I think they're going to let people kind of kind of grow and, and wean themselves out. And then they'll buy, come in and sweep in and buy what's uh, what's still the cream of the crop. But there's so much, so many little distillers out there. I don't I mean. Yeah, there's going to so be many. no, there's no end in sight for those. Yeah. But this was a, a great topic to kind of look at what, what could, what could potentially happen. And we do what we do, Beth, is, as we analyze hypothesize and you know what the best thing about this whole conversation is criticize 
I don't think anything's going to take it down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think the only thing that really could is like... Um, Saying we uh, just wasted 45 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> a major natural disaster. Yeah, true. I mean, that's... that's that's. Yeah, you get a tornado rip through Nelson County or yeah. something like that. I don't or know. Or another one of those big giant fires, right. you know? Like, I mean, if you think about it, like that, that's scary. And that's why they have all those things in place. And if one of those things happen... That's, you know, government will come in and step things up for safety. Like you can't have tours anymore. Or you can't build a house near here. Or you can't do this. And so. Very true. Very true. All right. Well, maybe I'm back to being scared. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but like, look, that's the same with the airline. Industry. It's the same with any industry. It, yes. Yeah. I mean, there's like, a, you know, planes uh, used to have like screws loose and then people crashed and then they started tightening the screws, you know, I mean, <laughs> Thank God. little things, but uh, that's just, uh, that's just, that's the government's job to keep, you know, the one thing that they should be doing is to make sure their citizens are safe and like the natural disaster, if it can be prevented, they would. If we could, if we could. But this is a great episode talking about what would happen and what could be the biggest threat to bourbon. So if you have any ideas of something that we might have missed, let us know and maybe we'll bring it up for a round two. We can discuss that as well. But make sure you follow us on all the socials. Follow us everybody, Fred Minnick on here on all his socials. Mm -hmm. And make sure you share the podcast with a friend, leave a review, whatever it is. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next week. Pocket six. Toodles. <laughs>